1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bihani Sarkar from the Oriental Institute. At the University of Oxford, we'll be talking about her fascinating 2017 OUP publication, Heroic Shaktism, The Cult of Durga in Ancient Indian Kingship. Hello, Bihani, and welcome to the program.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Balkaran, Raj, for for inviting me.
1: I'm Raj, and my students call me Dr. Raj. The only time I see Balkaran is in print.
0: (laughs) So... I see. So should I call you Dr. Raj?
1: (laughs) No, of course not. (laughs) No, Raj is fine. If Bihani is fine, I imagine so. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: Yes. And we have much to talk about, it appears. Uh, Research interests, teaching interests. Let's dive in. So in 2017, you produced this book called Heroic Shaktism. As the subtitle indicates, it's about the cult of Durga, this very famous um, uh, face of the feminine divine in Indian civilization. And so maybe a great place to start is telling us what is heroic Shaktism.
0: Yes. Yeah. So um, heroic Shaktism is really a phrase that I, I coined. I mean, it's not a historically attested uh, form. The the form really that is historically attested is Shakta. And a Shakta is uh, a worshiper of... Shakti, uh, the supreme form of the goddess, and um, the traditions, the the worship and religious and um, uh, traditions uh, dedicated to Shakti are also called Shakta. Heroic Shaktism is a particular uh, tendency within the Shakta traditions. Um, It is the the worship by by, uh, warriors, or um, uh, lineages that that were connected to political power, that ruled kingdoms um, of the goddess Durga, who is, uh, uh, throughout throughout her development, her primary identity is as a warrior goddess. Just as Athena blesses uh, heroes in in, in the Greek tradition, so Durga too blesses heroes, grants sovereignty, sovereignty, grants kingship. Um, and grants the right, the the right to to hold power uh, throughout generations. So often we would find in um, within the story of of Indic kingdoms that uh, the right to rule was was in fact perceived to be bestowed by the goddess throughout the generations, um, and and hence her worship throughout the generations. Uh, from one king to another king was critical. So this is what I mean by, by heroic shaktism. It is a form of worshipping the goddess that is particular to uh, the hero. Um, but of course, it's by no means something that is just done by, by uh, heroes, but rather the, the rewards that you would get from uh, this worship are rewards that I think are very much important for a king Um, so you know uh, how do I ensure that uh, my kingdom remains safe how do I uh, make sure that my people don't die of you know this horrible earthquake or or you know meteor falling from the skies Um, how do I make sure that my enemy doesn't tie me up and take me away and uh, grab hold of my kingdom how do i make sure that all these nasty pishachas and bhutas and demons that that uh, 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 that populate this this medieval cosmic world don't attack my my community so the 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 way i do this as a king would be to to worship the the, the force the the, the concentrated power force that is is the source of all these gifts and also the source to to protect my kingdom from these dangers which is the goddess
1: oh this uh, this Quite of uh, this. Well, there's a reason why my first book is called The Goddess and the King in Indian myth. And so there is this profound, um, uh, colorful connection between royal power and uh, the goddess Durga in particular. Yes. Um, now uh, turning back to your research you mention in this uh, th- this medieval cosmology so maybe flesh out for the audience what time period you know what what junctures are you looking at in your book and maybe the, the sort of like the data what evidence are you using to craft your argument
0: yes I am looking at um, the period which is mainly after the fall of a very important um, classical uh, uh, royal empire in in India called the Guptas. And uh, this is around the middle of the 5th century. And I'm looking particularly at this period when the Gupta empire begins to wane. And this opens up Uh, the space for um, a number of other um, uh, uh, competitors, rivals, smaller kingdoms that uh, assert themselves um, in this this vacuum. So it's the period that is post-Gupta up until the 11th century uh, uh, or 12th century AD. And the reason why I picked this period is because um, this is the time that all the, the, the most of the literature that I, I work primarily with primary sources, uh, primary sources in Sanskrit and, and Prakrit, a few in Prakrit, mainly in Sanskrit. Um, I'm trained as a Sanskritist. And most of the, the descriptive uh, materials in uh, classical Sanskrit that can tell us anything really substantive about, Um, the nature of the deity, who the worshippers are, um, that can allow us to construct a narrative, a broad narrative, um, really comes from this period. And interestingly, this is also the period when uh, post-Gupta imperial lineages are asserting themselves. Having said that, um, I also look uh, at the Gupta period as well because the roots of this divinity, the roots of this deity, um, while it goes back much earlier than the Guptas, but we get um, fascinating accounts. From uh, the Gupta period or from from that time from Vaishnava, uh, uh from literature from the Vaishnava uh, religious traditions so um it's a big swath of time that I'm talking about, mainly a bit after the Guptas right up till the 12th century AD, so the, the, uh, what's called the early medieval period. And the sources I'm looking at are um, primary sources in Sanskrit and Prakrit from this period. These include um, mythologies. Uh, the kind of mythologies that we get in um, the corpus of Indian legends called the Puranas, which are one of our most important sources, as as, as you know Raj um, very well, of the the of our study of uh, the Shakta the traditions. Of course, we also must look at what are called um, tantric. Uh, Often we call tantric esoteric uh, religious traditions as well. Um, We have to look at them uh, together. But uh, uh, sometimes people who are trained within, um, especially in tantric traditions, tend to disregard Puranic sources. I I think that um, you can't do that. You have to look at them uh, as as, uh, in conversation. I also look at um, epigraphical sources because epigraphical sources really give us uh, facts like dates and names and places, um, and uh, this can very help us to plot the abstractions of religious text within an appropriate historical context. Uh, I also look at poetic literature uh, a lot of there's a lot of beautiful. Magnificent poetry, uh, shakta, poetry dedicated to the goddess, liturgical traditions, so so, um, uh, ritual manuals that were used by priests on the ground that continue to be used actually uh, on the ground including the Devi Mahatmya that is a very important part of your life. I know, Raj. So the Devi Mahatmya is, of course, a sacred text that is chanted. So it forms the liturgy of the the goddess's worship. So it's very intimately connected to her nature and power. And I also uh, found it important to look at vernacular narratives. And by that, I I, uh, I I looked, I mean, where I could, I looked at the original sources where, where my language skills enabled me that. So I, I speak uh, Bengali so I could read Bengali sources. And there were some fascinating accounts, of course, in, in, in South Indian languages and in Marathi. These, of course, I had to rely on translations. And... Um, Ethnographic accounts, uh, the anthropologists um, in the early, uh, in the last 50 years, actually going even further back from the 19th century, have gone to um, um, uh, places in the Indic world that continue uh, older forms of, of kingship, such as in Nepal, uh, or they've gone to villages where many of these early traditions continue and they've documented it for us. Of course, when looking at these, uh, descriptions we can't see them as 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 you know they're not accurate reflections of what happened in in the post Gupta scenario but um, they are a good indication of uh, of of how it could have been and what the changes could have been uh, between uh, then and now yes so those are oh. my. Sources and uh, historical periods,
1: you certainly look at a wide range of sources uh, over this period to map the the, 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 the the sort of the chronology of the, as you call it, the cult of Durga, of the worship of this goddess and her, her role, her significance in the life of kings, in the institution of kingship. Mm. Um, and so what is your central argument? You make an argument based on for example, um, to what do we owe Durga's prominence and, 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 and usage in this capacity?
0: Yes. Um, so I would say the main arguments of the book I can maybe summarize in the following way. The first is that the spread of Durga's worship in this period is connected with the rise of early Indian military lineages and early Indian kingdoms. The second argument is that um, within this story, the nature of the deity changed, that it wasn't a static kind of uh, deity. That in the beginning, um, this deity begins as, is, is, is much in the way that the roots of Shiva go back to the to the um, ferocious Rudra, the Vedic Rudra, in the same way that the roots of this particular goddess goes back to a rather ferocious and ambivalent deity, who's um, connected to sleep, who's connected to to death, and um, connected particularly to Krishna. She is regarded as Krishna's sister. And from these, let's say, um, marginal roots, because she's still a kind of uh, deity that's thought to ward away dangers and is slightly dangerous herself. Um, In this uh, narrative of the rise of the the, the, uh, goddess's worship, she transforms into a much more expansive persona, a great goddess, a goddess who represents motherhood, benevolence, uh, the, the the source of boons, um, the source of protection. Um, so so this this is what I wanted to emphasize as well that there's a shift in the character, the persona of the deity um, of of Durga from uh, um, a version of a goddess of sleep associated with Navami in 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 the uh, in the month of monso- in the monsoon period to uh, a much more Um, expansive, cohesive, uh, uh, ubiquitous deity, a deity who's present everywhere, a great goddess. The third argument that I wanted to to make is that um, she becomes representative of local goddesses. That there were a number of uh, local uh, goddesses worshipped, still worshipped in parts of India, um, historians have surmised that many of these goddesses might have a um, have, have non-Brahmanical origins, so they were worshipped by the local the local indigenous population. Durga becomes associated with these goddesses, and and sort of is the face for um, is their face she she allows them to to um, to to acquire a prestigious status within uh, classical hinduism and um, I suppose my final argument is to do with the navaratra. Uh, I felt that the history of the of heroic shaktism is cannot be told um, properly without etching uh, a narrative of uh, the Navaratra festival, the festival of the nine nights. And my argument there was that initially it's a Vaishnava festival on Navami to placate this wild goddess who grants kingship to kings, but it expands into a much more capacious nine day grand ceremony. Um, uh, such as we have now. And of course, the, the deities change from an, a ferocious to a more benevolent figures reflected in the change in the Navaratra as well. Um, so these are the various arguments that I hoped I was able to make, um, uh, uh, that I hope I was able to make in the book. Um, what, yes.
1: What do you say about Skanda and the goddess?
0: Yes, um, that's uh, an interesting and rather complicated question. Uh, so Skanda, I mean, a lot of work has been done on Skanda Kartikeya. Skanda was an important god of kingship. Uh, at a very early period, but uh, Skanda Kartikeya um, also has a presence in medical literature as a deity of possession. But there is, in this, um, historians such as uh, historians have, of of South Asian religions have pointed out that Skanda makes this elevation from uh, a deity of um, uh, of, of uh, possession, uh, someone who's surrounded by the 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 matris. He's associated with these seven goddesses called the mothers, who are again associated with fertility, childbirth possession as well. And then he becomes, um, he's elevated uh, as, as a god of kingship. He's also uh, absorbed within um, the Shaiva traditions and uh, is, is considered uh, uh, Shiva's uh, uh, son, the young prince, Kumara, who leads the the, the army of, of heaven. Now, what interested me about Skanda was that in the Mahabharata in uh, the Aranyaka Parvan, there is a narrative of Skanda. And there he slays uh, Durga's arch nemesis Mahisha, the buffalo demon. That was the first time I thought, you know, oh, uh, this is really interesting and uh, what's going on here. And, uh, and uh, fortunately, a uh, number of scholars had said, uh, I think that would I might be mistaken but but at the time I, I I saw that there were two scholars who had noticed this and had also remarked on this, but it's you know they, they hadn't gone further into it, so I thought, right, I think this is important, and um, we've got to delve into it now, in a nutshell, um, again, what I've presented about the relationship between Skanda and durga and the book um I am, I am, I am aware that it is a sort of working hypothesis, no doubt based on, very much based on, on evidence. Uh, And I'm open to changing my, my, my ideas if, if appropriate evidence is presented to me. But uh, in a nutshell, it seems that, um, some of the, the, the early, the myth of, of Skanda um, uh, and the myth of the goddess share very close correspondences. So the narrative traditions of both deities share very close correspondence and furthermore you also have very common uh, deity groups that you have common deity groups to both of them. So the matris and these um, this retinue of strange, strange uh, fascinating uh, characters uh, that surrounds Skanda You also have them in Durga's case. And in fact, later on, um, especially in the worship of Durga, you you cannot worship Durga without first worshipping or without worshipping her avarana, her retinue, the saptamatris, all the yoginis, together with Durga. And within um, Skanda's time as well, these deities held um, a function in Safeguarding uh, spaces, uh, safe, especially in things like crossroads, market places where lots of people gather. So, this, so you, you safeguard that space by worshipping the matris. They serve a very similar purpose in, in Durga's case as well. Um, the worship of um, Durga in the midst of her Saptamatra and uh, 64 yoginis is taught on Mahashtami. Uh, and on Mahanavami within the Eastern traditions, and there is this very strong link between Skanda and and Durga as well. Apart, of course, also from the 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 slaying of Mahisha, um, we could keep on talking about this. I mean, um, I can I can you know. Uh, uh, um, go on expanding uh, the the details of this are really treated in the book, uh, but uh, I I also feel that there is um, and and I show the ev- present the evidence in the book as well that uh, there are aspects in her mythology of aspects of how she is presented as a royal figure. That I feel are very similar, harmonious to, way, to the way that Skanda is presented. Before the, the Devi Mahatmya or these early old Skanda Purana, these early mythic traditions, if you go back to the version of a goddess, she's not really a, a goddess of the, of the battlefield or, or, or of armies. She's a goddess of the monsoon. She, she's, of course, a dangerous figure, but she's associated with skies. Um, Kings, of course, worship her, but she doesn't have this whole officialness about her at all. The association with dharma, the association with dharma is something that, uh, that is, is, is made at a later phase with the goddess, particularly with the Mahishasura and the demon slaying all the Alshumba Nishumba myths. But in the early Vaishnava strand, that association that she restores dharma um, by restoring the gods to, to the heaven, that association is not explicit.
1: Until the Devi Mahatmya, you'd say.
0: Until the Devi Mahatmya, yes, yes. Uh, where it is, of course, uh, you know, uh, dharma is, is the key thing there.
1: And, 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 and Chathya dharma. Really, like her, uh, her, yeah. her, she, her the, the, the the imperative uh, to protect, uh, that uh, the perils abound and you have to fight fire with fire. You need something dangerous to deal exactly. with the dangers uh, exactly. of, of spiritual dangers, social dangers. Yeah.
0: Yes. Although having said that, you know, I've recently um, come across, uh, um, so in the book, I I'm, I. I didn't really look much in depth in Vedic materials, uh, and uh, that's, I think, a great shortcoming. It's simply because there, you know, you, I needed much more training in that to 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 get into it. But recently, I've been made aware. Um, uh, by uh, uh, Professor Lubin, who's just written about certain uh, texts within the Vedic tradition that describe mantras of Durga, that uh, within the Vedic tradition as well, I mean, his argument is that these mantras to the goddess are being retrofitted uh, into Vedic materials. Um, but whenever they're being retrofitted, it, it, it's still probably quite, quite early. Um, within those mantras, she is being uh, she is being um, evoked as a benevolent, auspicious figure. Of course, kingship and protection from danger, all of that comes in, but as a much bigger goddess. Not just a small goddess of dangers and, and protection of the king from the dangers, but you know someone who protects homes as well because the the context in which uh, the, 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 these mantras are are uh, taught is the um Griha sutra context, the domestic ritual so um Yes, there is this um, connection with warrior culture, but I think from a very early period, and this is also the reason why the the cult spread, she becomes much bigger than that. She also offers goods and things and protection and and, uh, bounty and peace and all of those things that also I think are fundamental to good kingship. You know, you don't just go around conquering people and killing and cutting off people's heads and, you know, being all really brutal. No, you. Governance means uh, dharmic, uh, dharmic governance, and uh, and looking after your subjects and uh, making gifts.
1: Um, well, for example, in the. Um... Uh, I mean, this. I mean, there's there's much discourse on on, on on the nature of the proper king. But for example, in the opening lines of the Devi Mahatmya, we're told about this king who was a noble king because he treated his subjects as if they were his children, not in this sort of modern sort of oh, who wants to be infantilized? No, it's that to nurture, to provide for, to care. And so the dharma of the king and the dharma of the mother are not so dissimilar. In, yes. you see.
0: Yes, I, I I certainly think so. There is uh, the the king's role is also to nourish, uh, to to nourish and rather than to take and aggrandize, and within Indian kingship, um, that uh, uh, is 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 very much there. Of course, the king's also supposed to uphold the the chaturvarna, the four castes. That's one of his primary duties but to look after those who fall within the uh, forecast as well. But coming back to the Kshatriya thing that you had mentioned, I just want to say this before I forget it, that um, she is not simply uh, in this early literature, there's a very close connection that is shown between her and the the outcast king. This figure that's always typified in Sanskrit literature as the Shabara. The outcast, you know, that's just a generic term for anyone who doesn't come within the the uh, the 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 forecast. Uh, the the caste, the. the, caste. the mlecha. Yeah, the mlecha. Uh, later on, in in materials that we find in the Devi Purana, she's also said to be the goddess of the mlechas. So, it is. Uh, I think the earlier that we go into this, into, into this literature, she is a deity of kings, but not just of the Hindu king, but it's a much more um, ecumenical form of kingship. You know, it involves, includes every, any, any uh,
1: king. Um, and also uh, this, 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 this uh, theological, philosophical vision of, of the goddess that, that's, you know, really uh, woven together through narrative, it's not, ex- Exposition per se, um, her 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 penchant for paradox, right? She is right. the patron of the center and of the periphery, right? Exactly,
0: exactly. I, I I think you you put it so beautifully there. I think that that's really one wonderful way of that that you can really think about it. That she is the patron goddess of both the center and the periphery, and. Isn't that how good government should also work? <laughs> that <Well>, she <laughs> in the
1: centre,
0: but also for the periphery. <laughs> okay.
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh, no, that's 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 great. I mean, uh, clearly, I mean, there's much to. Uh, it, there's a. The, your book is um, filling a, a massive niche, and maybe much about Durga that we may assume or internalize, but you you rigorously demonstrate the influence of the cult of Durga and the relationship she has to the life of of Indian kings. And, and indeed, um, 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 what's, what I find so interesting is that we have such different methodologies, and, but our findings really corroborate each other in a sense. Where I look at a synchronic. Uh, i look at the 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 devymatma synchronically yes. and sort of juice the hindu imaginaire of course right and then you basically are able to show that this is how it's been iterated this is how yes. it's been in vogue at various points in history between yes. the, the 13th centuries and mm-hmm. i find that so interesting independently we've we've yes. uh, it may be obvious that the davi that the davi is is a patron of kings and and M- many think actually, I mean, I've uh, come across the argument that the merchant is the hero of the Devi Mahatma because he asks yes. for moksha. He <laughs> asks for good. moksha, and the foolish king is still attached. No. But no, it, it occurred to me that no, that the text was maybe even in a slightly subversive way uh, in terms of Upanishadic ideology. It's saying, no, actually, the king is the hero, mm. the one who wants to remain in the world for the welfare of the world. Mm. Right? Yes. The, uh, yes. And,
0: Yes, Anyhow. I, mean, I think uh, Raj. If, if um, I'd spend my entire life in this kind of synch- in in synchronic world, because myth mythology to me is so fascinating, and always playing in my head. And every time I I read one of these myths, I can, you know, thousands of connections and things. I, you, if I went into um, into myth, i probably just work with myth. So next time I do work on myth, it'll probably be just myth. And the, the, the Devi Mahatmya itself—that narrative—it is so rich in what it suggests. Uh, profound. Now so many, um, uh, so many. Um, I do feel that one can intelligently read historical events within mythic tropes, especially myths that are cultural myths, like the Devi Mahatmya, that that we can read historical process as conveyed through through, um, imaginative devices. And if we read a number of these, we can, I think, piece together that narrative. Of course, all this has to be done rigorously and painstakingly, otherwise we might be saying any old thing But oh, um, I mean, but, 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 you know, look at the way the, the Devi Mahatmya myth is, is being uh, interpreted and interpreted now. I find it fascinating that myths still continue in culture that Mahishasara uh, within, I think the last 30, 30 years or 40 years, um, uh, Contemporary Indians have begun to interpret Mahishasura as the, um, the tribal, the tribal whose lands are being um taken away from him, the outcast, and and Durga is a symbol of uh Brahmanical Hinduism that is treading on, on the tribal. So these narratives continue. I mean, I had somebody ask me in an angry way that. Why you support? You know why you, you, you don't you know that this is what Mahishasra stands. He stands for the oppressed tribal, and and I didn't have anything to say because I thought how amazing that you can you actually see these resonances, and that just shows to me the the, the power of this myth that uh, these symbols are so connected with um, social event that they can suggest something even now.
1: Um, yeah <laughs> it's it, it, it seems to me i mean the who knows what was happening in the world behind the texts around the time of the guptas but yeah. but we know that something uh mammoth was happening yes. for 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 all of a sudden a uh, theology centered on the great goddess to be as I put it trojan horse into the pranic fold in this text clearly much was happening mm. and clearly the, 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 the theology of the goddess uh is as much about paradox as this historical moment, where yes. tribal and antinomian traditions are being folded into a, 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 a cohesive religious vision. I yes. mean, one can easily make the argument, maybe now post uh, recent scholarship, that okay, Well Durga represents the state and and, and sort of the Brahmanical mm. uh, powers that be. Uh, having said that, I mean. Uh, um, she uh is intoxicated in one episode she accepts the blood of the limbs of the merchant and the king yes. in the final frame clearly yes. there's much more going on here yes right? clearly yes
0: in fact this particular practice of offering uh, the hero offering blood from i think it's the thigh the shoulder um uh let's see the main body parts of the arm, arm as well, to the goddess. This uh, it comes; it keeps coming back in different examples of uh, historical materials. We we have these depicted in iconography. Uh, there are these marvelous South Indian seventh-century um, uh, sculptures of the goddess surrounded by uh, hero, heroic worshippers. Um, ready to, you know, actually one about to cut off his head and offer to the goddess. And um, similarly in other, I mean, I've seen in uh, Navarata ritual manuals that come from the, the kingdom of Mithila, as late about from the 13th, 14th century, that there is this entire section, uh, starting from Mahashtami Mahanavami, of of rituals of the the hero offering blood. And I think what's, you can interpret that in many ways, but I think what's happening there is that um, this is a sign of a true hero. And it's self-sacrifice is what a good soldier does, that I'm putting myself out on the line to protect my people. And if we go back to the myth of the goddess in the Harivaksha, one of the early myths, you still I mean, she sacrifices her life for her brother, Krishna. Kamsa comes and kills her. She, she's ready to do this to save her brother and um, Krishna is saved thereby. And when Kansa dashes her to the rock, she flies up in the air, and she's, she says that, you know, this was planned all along, and I'm going to, um, you're just this horrible, uh, you're terrible, and I'm going to drink your blood when you die. And, but what, what happens there is that she epitomizes what a true warrior does, that they put themselves out on the line, they sacrifice themselves, for someone else, and I think the offering of blood is is linked with that because it's it's a practice that seems to be associated mainly with warriors. So, king, you know, not everybody is is asked in ritual manuals to do this. Only the king, only the king, or, or, or we find in depictions and sculpture, only a warrior uh, literature, only a shabara hero. Um, there are examples in, in, in stories about Shivaji, the great Maratha ruler. There are these uh, Marathi stories where he's ready to cut his head again, again, styling himself in that way that, you know, I am the true warrior. I, I am going to cut my head off for Bhavani. And, but Bhavani, of course, in those stories, she intercedes and she says, no, you know, you're not going to do that. So I think the offering of blood by a hero is... Um, uh, is linked to to um, to re- renunciation and sacrifice that's it's, an,
1: it's an evocative um, overlap between the sacrifice of 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 of, of battle and, and, and ritual sacrifice in a sense
0: exactly exactly that uh, the the true king the true the true Kshatriya the true Veera um, will go out on the battle and the battle is a kind of you're offering your life to the to the ritual space in the ritual space of the battle and you will the 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 glory that you will earn at the end of the battle is is heaven and uh, you're right it's a kind of um, it's very interesting what you said because uh, yes the offering of blood may seem to be a, um, a ritual encapsulation of what happens in the battlefield
1: well, for me, that was sort of a... Uh, I, I, that stood out from the from the, uh, the beginning of my doctoral studies. I, I did, a I, had a I think, a conference presentation I had to prepare for, and I, I thought, well, why not start now and, and analyze mm-hmm. the frame of this text? And it just it just stood out to me as mm-hmm. very important to the text. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the text is saying. I know that, that the text is saying something very important,
0: Yeah. right? <laughs>
1: and so for me, it was like, this is a valorization of Kshatriya Dharma. If we want to sort of crudely think of, well, is this, you know, is this valorizing the Dharma of the Brahmanas that's mm. more ascetic and, you know, I just want Moksha or is it valorizing the Dharma of the Kshatriyas? You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I strive for the welfare of the world. Mm. You, know, I, 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 you know, the imperiled are more important than my salvation in some sense. Yes. This is,
0: question to you, Raj. I mean, what you just said prompted me. Then, um if it is and it's a question i'm also asking myself actually that if it if if this is a valorization of shatrya dharma then what about the role of this uh, of the merchant there and uh, who, the merchant who's um uh, um Who goes through exactly the same experience as the king? Here is this merchant. They're both affluent men, from what's from the story. They're not. They're all men of both men of power in different spheres, finance and politics. Um, But they are both uh, tricked, dispossessed by their families. Um, The people closest to them have uh, have have betrayed them, and they've lost everything. So we've. We see this narrative of loss. It begins in a tragic moment. They're these two characters, once powerful, once glorious, but reduced to a state of nothing. Um, and and, I, and for me, when I read it, it said that the, one of the points that the text is making is presenting their equality. That she, this grand king and this grand merchant, at the end of the day. They're actually just the same people. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I'm. I'm not being. How else can I understand the, the role of the, that merchant there? And
1: this is sort of, you know, just to sort of reflect on the spot. It's. I, I touch on this a little bit in 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 the book, the, the the goddess and the king, which is more about the king, obviously. But for me, um, one can read that that really brief but potent uh frame as a stream of consciousness mm. where these are parts of self mm.
0: these these
1: these really strike me as parts of self you know um uh the the the, the voice of reason and wisdom the go getting uh, the go getter right mm. the more detached witness These are parts of self. So I really read the merchant and the king as balancing each other out. And what I argue is that what the, the text has to, part of the project of the epics and the Puranas is to encode what I call the Dharmic double helix. Poverty and niverty have to be paradoxically united in a way that will never make sense. And that's why we have kings who end up in the forests. Mm. That's why we have Rama as a pseudo-ascetic, for example. Mm. Why does he need to wear bark garments to fulfill his father's boon? There's no reason for that, right? This is the, the double helix. So we need the nivertic uh, valorization to be yes. preserved, to be a classical Hindu text.
0: Yes, and yes. I think
1: that's the role the merchant plays, uh, mm-hmm. also as an aspect of self. You know, there's a reason why she's, you know, bhukti mukti Badaini, right? She'll give both. And we don't necessarily get the sense that the king is as infatuated at the outset as he is. He may have benefited from the jnana of, of mm-hmm. Sage Medas, but now he's sort of in this space of, you know, you know, I understand I'm the, the, the I'm not, I'm not propelled by Maya as I was before. I'm not despondent. I'm not dejected. Nevertheless, in full awareness, I wish for my kingdom back and I wish to be Lord of an age.
0: This is yeah. very important. I think what you said that this, the, 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 the importance of paradox, and you mentioned that before, because uh, the goddess herself is, is paradox that there are both these, um these, contradictory aspects within her, in the first charita of the Devi Mahatmya, the, the sage, as you will remember, explains to, explains to the, the, the merchant and the king that um, the, the, the goddess is the principle of Maya. The principle of, and Maya is paradox. Maya is samsara, it is your life in transmigration. So the goddess is the principle that entraps you in samsara and this continuous life. So in a way, that's a kind of almost a negative uh, picture. But at the same time, she's also the principle of liberation. She, she, not only is she maya uh, samsara, but she can also liberate, liberate uh, both, of, both of these, um, the devotees uh, to, to, uh, uh, so that they acquire freedom from, from, from samsara. And it's after the, the, the sage explains the importance of life as paradox, goddess as paradox, they understand the importance of paradox, your double helix. And that's when they start to worship her. But they need to, I think, the, the point of the, the narrative is that they need to understand um, paradox.
1: Well, and I think, yes, no, I, I agree entirely. And what's interesting to me is in looking at the, the, the narrative structure and this kind of lens of frame narratives, there is the, the, the text oscillates between poverty and liberty in the frame in that they have a, a, a nivertic problem we are dejected by this this world that will never satisfy anyone and it's full of of evil it's full of greed it's full of corrupt ministers the world is a problem and we have to you know i'm a king without power what is that you know i'm a merchant without wealth what is that we're, we're mm-hmm. dispossessed or we're, or we're, we're, we're like you know walking zombies wondering how the heck we got here mm-hmm. and that's that's the problem that's presented
0: mm-hmm.
1: to be solved with the council of the, uh, the the made this, but the, the that problem is framed by the first problem of a noble and wise and good king being usurped by corruption, so the initial problem the text says is that we have a social problem yes and and then it goes to the the, the, the metaphysical existential problem, and it 's so interesting that the king says, "Look look, look, uh, sorry, the sage says." Look, you know, they, they, basically they approach a sage. Why do any of us go to a guru or teacher or coach? We're suffering, right? Mm-hmm. They approach a sage and they're like, look, like I'm, I'm beside myself. This merchant's beside himself. You know, Swamiji, help us. What's happening here? And he's like, oh, sit, 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 have a chai. This is not a big deal. Look, see these ridiculous birds that are flying back and forth, thinking yeah. their, 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 their babies will love them forever. And as soon as they feed them enough, the babies fly away. They're propelled by maya. We're all in this matrix and they're engaged. But this is what prompts what prompts the king to ask for more is after he says this, after mm-hmm. he talks about the sway of Maya and then the problem of attachment, he says, Yeah, she is the Maya, she is the liberation. Oh, and she's the sovereign of all sovereigns. That's yes. that's his hook. Yeah. He's like, Oh, tell me about power, tell yeah. me about sovereignty.
0: Exactly. And again, if, if, if we take one step back and go back to the historical narrative that we started with, I think this whole metaphysical dimension of the goddess as Maya, uh, Sangsaric Maya, the cause of Sangsaric bondage, but also the principle of liberation. Um, I think this was there, but it somehow grew around this core of giver of sovereignty, that somehow that she is attached to this state of social crisis. She's worshipped in a state of social crisis. And what you just mentioned, the Nivritti period, the the the, the, the period of crisis that happens to, to any person engaged in the world, a merchant, uh, oops, a financier and a politician, people most prone to, to uh, ups and downs, actually. And this is the deity who's very much linked with these situations. Um, the more also, I don't know if it struck you, I'm sure it has, Raj, that, that a very similar situation is, is also what happens at the Gita in a way, that these um, that, that Arjuna is in a similar state of... of mm. um,
1: that's exactly the, the, the corollary, the analog I look at in the, I think the first or the second chapter of my book is like, I look, I, I, I plot the double helix in the frame of the Devi Mahatmya and I plot the double helix in the frame of the Gita. And what I'm saying is that they're, they're both couching the existential problem as dependent upon resolving, ultimately resolving the social problem. Yes, the, the, the pendulum has to swing the other way. Yes. From, from Vedic world affirmation to Upanishadic yes. world denial, the pendulum has to say, we need both this spiritual apex. Exactly. But we also need good kings and protection in the world. Exactly. We, we need to find a way to, to bring them together.
0: Exactly. Right? And, and, and I think the context which brings these two together is a tragic occurrence, is calamity. Because those are the situations in which um, these characters, and I think most of us, a lot of us, would ask such deep existential questions, would search for some kind of answer. And the answer in this case is always posited as the goddess. um, But the answer is provided in this context of um, social breakdown that leads to an existential and inner breakdown. Um,
1: Which we're we're all living through as a species as we speak.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And as the Buddhists would say, we probably, we we always will, and it'll never end, you know. (laughs) Um, Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, what, in terms of your book, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about uh, in terms of the content of the book that we didn't touch on?
0: Um, I think you know this. Uh, this conversation has gone through so many uh, interesting and 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 especially with the myth uh, part of it that was really enjoyable. I I have nothing really further to add except I would I would probably ask you more about uh, this whole uh, the the comparison that you make with the Gita that I I really find fascinating in the the, the situations of Arjuna and. Um, and uh, these, Suratha, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, Samadhi, um, they even, you know, <laughs> there's one difference though. I, I don't think that they go through as much of a traumatic physical process as, as uh, Arjuna does. Uh, Arjuna is, is incapacitated by, by grief. I mean, he's really going through something terrible.
1: Well, we, we, uh, part, of, part of that is that um, there's much, much, much more space in the Gita than in the opening frame of the Devi Mahatmya that's telegraphic. I think Coburn even uses that term. It's telegraphic in its brevity, but it's so, so rich, right? Mm-hmm. But th- there's just so little room. But basically, the king's beside himself sitting in the outskirts of the ashram. And the merchant comes along and he's basically like, why so glum chum? Like, what's your, you, you look how I feel, what's happening here? Like, mm-hmm. they're both beside themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just, a, I think it's the space, right? I mean, the king is so beside himself, he's, he's mounted his horse alone. He's lost his power. He's lost, he's sitting there thinking, what is elephant?" He's, he's, he's lamenting. But rather than give that lamentation, 18 shlokas, it's in one shloka type thing. So I think that's, I think it's a question of just um, how compact that first uh, frame yes. is.
0: Although I have, you know, absolutely, but but you know, in in um, poetic receptions of this tale, that moment, um, the, the 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 power, the emotional power of that moment, is seized on by by composers, and they really build it up. And uh, the, the lamentation of Suratha in in say, there's a um, reception a kavya reception called the durga vilasa that i'm working on as well and that moment is so beautifully expanded you know the, this this lament that goes where he really pours his heart out um, it, there is i think what what drew me to these narratives is the humanity of 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 of, of this narrative that these great and mighty characters are going through something that is very core to, to human ex- experience, and that is grief. Um, and and, and in this, and the goddess is connected to that, uh, that, that experience, alleviating that experience, but also connecting. She is also the cause, isn't she? She is Maya, which is the world in, its, in all its ups and downs and
1: paradoxes. It's good times and bad times, simplistic. Well, it's it's certainly. I mean, I mean, isn't that the power of myth, right? Isn't that the the appeal to the in that it encapsulates um, what goes on between their ears in a way that, 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 that treaties can't this, uh, it, through narrative, we, you know, human stories, right. That the mm-hmm. stories we tell civilizationally and the stories we tell day to day, they, that the, the stories that last are the ones that relate to our experience.
0: I think right? so. Yes.
1: There's a reason why we still see issues that we can relate to in these ancient tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think that's the very process whereby they, they endure.
0: Yes, and experiences, um, and the goddess is connected to experience, to, to human experience in the world, that unlike other divinities who are sort of quite, especially, you know, following the Upanishadic model, removed Far apart, separate, just you know, um, simply witness. One
1: hundred percent. One of one of the things that I noted that I, I, I may well develop. I actually presented it for the first time. There was a, a, an online week in Tantra School at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, and I ended up giving a talk on this. Basically, asking the question: You know, is the Devi Mahatmya a tantric text in terms of its narrative themes, mm. not in terms of its ritual usage? And uh, I noted this when I was uh, dissertating, and it's something I may develop. But the Devi only ever emerges from the body of another being.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> there are all, all the myths where y- y- she's, especially if you look at the early, the the Skanda Purana there all these kind of um morphings, bodies morphing into, into another. It's it's a it's it's kind of like an Ovidian metamorphosis. It's one body morphing into another. It's 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 amazing. It's, it's um, it,
1: it it really, it really. Whether, I mean, uh, it is my view that certainly the authors of the Devi Mahami are aware of tantric practice, but irrespective of that view that we so have well. to think about, um, it's utterly clear that um, that uh, immanence, divine imminence, is celebrated in the text. That this, what, what clinched it for me was the Ya Devi Sutti in chapter five, where the gods on high are appealing to the mother beyond, and how are they appealing to her? They're in, in heaven and they're looking up to the, to, to, for the help of the Devi. And they're like, oh, great glorious goddess who lives in all beings, like mm-hmm. in the creepy crawlies on the earth in humans and animals and gods. You live in all beings. And it's this yes. paradox, right? They're, they're yes. summoning her from above as that which lives as the very biorhythms in all beings.
0: Exactly. And I think and, that's, the, the, again, the paradox, that she is both the, the, the thing that transcends transmigratory reality, so phenomenal reality, but she's also phenomenal reality and the cause of phenomenal reality as well, that she's both these things and more that she's connected to our experience. Um, And in in a way that, you know, uh, Shiva or or Vishnu, the only kind of uh, correspondence I can find is with the idea of the Bodhisattva um, who will intercede in times of trouble even perhaps, uh, actually, even perhaps Vishnu's um, viewers and avatars will come at certain phases of, of, this, of, of uh, human history.
1: She, she, certainly, her, her function is, you know, it's basically the function of the avatar writ large, you know. Yes. But having said that, there is this comparable to mother tongue versus a father tongue, right? This idea of, you know, whether Sanskrit was a father tongue. There's something very immediate about the way in which the goddess is described. I think that's part of the rationale of using the feminine gender, right? I think that's part of the rationale. It's immediate, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's here, it's now. She's beyond, beyond as well, but she's immediate. She's intimate. She's here. This is her. The Maya is the Devi as well as transcendence of the Maya is the Devi. Mm -hmm. And, It's it it's it's what Surata learns is to be empowered within the Maya Mm. as opposed to being disempowered.
0: Exactly. And this is the lesson that the two learn, isn't it? That the 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 merchant and the king, they are disempowered and then and then they are re empowered at the end. Um and that's one of the messages of the Devi Matmya.
1: And this this paradox of uh, being the apex of both temporal and spiritual Mm. power. She mm. is power. She is the height of power. Exactly. Right? And so the height of power in the world is the king. And the height of power beyond the world is one who attains moksha, who's, who goes beyond I and minus. I believe that's the way the text describes it. Mm. Um, a fascinating discussion. Um, you are, it is, we are soon to be uh, commencing, um, well, it, it podcasts are timeless. Someone may be listening to this podcast. <laughs> six months from now uh, but it is today it's october 11th uh 2020 and so soon we'll be starting the goddess festival yes uh, so you're so this discussion is timely and Very... why don't you tell us tell us a little bit about um what you're doing for the festival in terms of the Devi Mahatmya, in terms of uh teaching tell us a little bit about what what opportunities um folks may have
0: well, thanks so much for, for bringing that up i'm, I'm um, so i'll during uh, shashti saptami ashtami mahanavami vijayadashami uh, i'll be reading from the devi mahatmya i'll be reciting and also providing um, translations uh, uh, while while I read, and we're, I'm going to read. Um, obviously, ideally, I would have read the whole thing as the the ch- proper Chandi parta should should do. But I'll I'll go through the Shumbha Nishumbha Vada section, which covers quite most of it. Um, so i'll be uh, reading that and uh, you can you can ha- see more information about it uh, on on my professional website um please please kind of register and uh, it's i've it's very cheap it's 32 pounds for all the the um the the five uh readings they're about one and a half hours each and um i thought that this would be a befitting way to to mark the navaratri and also to to re experience the, the Shumbha Shumbavada uh part, which is one i'd say one of the the earlier sort of narratives within the demon slaying narratives of of the goddess uh, so yes so if um if you're interested i mean please um you can email me at info at dot com or you can um uh, see more about the course at uh, bhani.sarkar.com, and um, please do subscribe. It's it starts on the twenty second of October, so uh, there's still time to register. So it's twenty second right up until I think the twenty eighth or the ninth. So um, and I record all the sessions, and you'll be getting them. So do
1: sign up. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm, I was actually quite uh, pleased to see you offering um, this online uh, adventure, this learning adventure for people interested. Uh, the world is changing. And the world is in- changing. Initially yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I mean my, you know, the, the online teaching was something I did sort of on the side uh, yeah. for three or four years now, uh, maybe five actually. And now all of a sudden, uh, it's needed at the academy. And and more and more, I, I really applaud scholars for taking the plunge and presenting their stuff online because yes. uh, there is a critical mass of the public that really want quality material. And if the experts aren't presenting it online,
0: yes.
1: if the chefs aren't cooking, they're forced to have fast food, right?
0: Exactly. And, you know, I enjoy communicating. I've enjoyed my um, online teaching experience. And usually there are people I cannot teach, you know, here where I'm sitting at now, right now, there are people all over the world. A lot of them are um, Indians from India who are, uh, you know, professionally engaged, but they want to go back uh, and re relearn and actually hold conversations. Um, so I found it a fantastic way of sharing all this kind of specialized and great research that is happening right now in our field with a broader audience, um, but bringing them into, into the, the conversation as well, because I feel that with things like Hindu studies, Sanskrit, it's such a divided world. Um, there are specialists, and then there are politicized uh, groups. And, you know, we need to create a space where we can uh, really just have a scholarly, um, unmotivated conversations that are conversations just for the pleasure of having them. Um, Indeed.
1: And that's very much the space of the podcast. And that's why I think there's great synergy here. Um, so for those of you listening, uh, we have been talking with Dr. Bihani Sarkar of the Oriental Institute at the University of Oxford on her 2017 OUP publication, Heroic Shaktism. Check it out. Uh, and also definitely go to BihaniSarkar.com. And uh, if you get this in time, then by all means, uh, register for her um, her Navaratri goddess extravaganza. <laughs> It, it was great having you on the program we'll continue chatting i'm sure uh beyond but thank you very much
0: thank you very much raj that was lovely thank you namaste
1: until next time until next time uh keep reading keep listening stay safe and keep contemplating the paradoxal the paradoxical mystery that is the Mahadevi. um I'm at rajbalkan.com. Feel free to message me if I can be of service with uh, book recommendations for future podcasts and whatnot. Take good care. Bye-bye.